0: Activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org/university.
1: All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Of our course, course as you know, is entitled "Genetic Testing and Prostate Cancer: Understanding Clinical Implications for Early Detection and Management of Localized and Advanced Disease." We, um, again, we really appreciate you guys coming out at 7:30 on a Sunday morning in New Orleans. Um, it's a, it's a tough task, and so thanks, thanks a ton. Um, I've got a few, a few things to read though before we'll start with the intros. But um, here's, here, here's the spiel. The AUA uh, 2022 annual meeting mobile app is available and is free to download. When you download the app, you will be asked for a username and password. Use your email that you used to register. Your your password is your AUA ID. You can find it on your registration badge. Um, AUA policy states that all planners, authors, and presenters must disclose prior to their presentation all relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. These disclosures are posted on the AUA's annual meeting website. For easy access, please visit auanet.org. Slash annual meeting. Please remember to silence your cell phone. Um, we, we won't be annoyed by that. It's actually fine. But um, no photos, video, or audio recordings are permitted. Really? Well, I okay. I I, I say take photos, photos, and put them on Twitter. Um, courses are selected based on evaluation results. So um, that, this is actually really important for us. We've been doing this course for oh, five years now, ish. Yeah, it's pretty so. We really enjoy doing this course. Um, it actually makes a big difference. We get the evaluations. We take a look at the evaluations. And the AUA takes a look at the evaluations when they make decisions about the next courses for next year. So please, please, please um, fill out that, fill out those evaluations. Um, at, um, you'll also, I think, at that time, have a chance to do the post-test. We're going to have a pre-test. There will be a post-test. and um, I've got, I get the, I, uh, I've got the post-test spiel that I'll remind you guys at the end, but if you happen to need to leave early, just know that there's a, there's a post-test. It's really important also, um, both for data-keeping and, hey, come on in. Good morning. Um, uh, and, um, and again, for kind of making changes to the course for next year. Um, I'll put, when we get to the pre-test questions, I will put the info again up on how to, how to do that. So, in terms of, this, do I have, oh, here's this, great. So, here, here are our disclosures. Um, I want to put these up there f- for a minute. Um, Dr. Gamela's, the advisory board for AstraZeneca, Merck, Exlexis, Panthe- and Pantheism. Um, for myself, advisory boards for Tempest and Myovan Biosciences, for Dr. Chang. I
2: think Pantheism sounds like a disease. It, well, it's
1: actually, I, look, you know, I, I, I looked up Pantheism. It, Is it, it's a disease? No, it's actually um, oh, I, forgot, I did. I, there's a whole Wikipedia page on pantheism, and it's. Do you know what, what it, it's, it, has, it's, it's, um, like it is? It has. It's. It is. It. But it's. It has something to do with religion. But it's a. It's a some take. It's, some take different from the atheism, say. But but um, somebody can Wikipedia that, and you'll. That's the word of the day is pantheism. But I couldn't find the company. I was really curious what that is. Um, <laughs> Dr. Chang, um, research funds from Clovis, Color, Janssen, Medivation, um, Boss Platin, and Sanofi, and consultant for AstraZeneca. And so, this, yeah, that, those are obviously very important to mention. Faculty, myself, I'm Todd Morgan, I'm uh, a urologic oncologist at the University of Michigan. Ted, that's when you say go blue. Um, but you, didn't, you missed your chance. Uh, Great to, great to get to be here this morning with all of you. Dr. Lenny Gamella, who's chair, also Uro, chair of urology at Jefferson University, Jefferson Health in Philadelphia, um, amongst many other senior roles there, and a expert, really expert, expert urologic oncologist in germline genetics. Very grateful to be able to work on this course with you over the years. Um, and our like the true guest is the non urologist medical oncologist Dr Heather Chang, who came all the way from Seattle just for this um, this morning. And truly, we cannot thank you cannot thank you enough for coming for this. Um, Dr Chang is big time expert in germline genetics, especially in advanced prostate cancer. Um, brings us a wealth of expertise. It directs the prostate cancer genetics clinic at. University of Washington slash Fred Hutch Cancer Center. Um, so th- thanks again for, for making it here, it's amazing. And it's really early West Coast time right now. All right, we did it. Okay, so now we get to start with the, with the brief intro. Um, which, and, and so what, you know really, what are the learning objectives here? One, we're gonna talk about counseling men with BRCA1, two mutations, Lynch syndrome, and other key inherited syndromes regarding their prostate cancer risk and appropriate strategies for cancer screening. I'm going to describe the criteria for genetic testing of prostate cancer patients, the gene panels available, and options for testing these men. And we're going to talk about how do we, you know, interpret the results of genetic testing and relay this information to patients in order to facilitate shared decision making based on the test results. Finally, we're going to utilize, talk about how do we utilize these results um, to improve outcomes among patients with prostate cancer. So these are are the objectives that we hope to cover, that we will cover. First, just like the big picture, step back. Why do we consider germline testing? Why are, you know, why are you guys here today to talk about this? Well, we think about this for risk assessment, right? For any biomarker, risk assessment. We're often talking about what is the probability of somebody developing cancer? Or what is the probability of somebody developing aggressive cancer? We think about prevention, and, and we don't think about that maybe enough for prostate cancer. Is the disease risk modifiable? So is there, can we identify patients at particularly high risk, and can we modify that risk? Again, for just about any biomarker, we're thinking prognosis. Does the germline alteration have an impact on prognosis for affected men, men with prostate cancer? Which mutations? Treatment selection. So are there treatments that are more or less effective in the setting of a specific mutation? And so here the term we often think about is a predictive biomarker. So we think about prognostic biomarkers that can, you know, these are like say, the cipher test that um, people often use in localized prostate cancer, which is a prognostic biomarker, tells us about risk risk stratification, but doesn't necessarily tell us what treatment is going to be best. And so, for germline mutations, are there mutations that might tell us which treatments work better? The answer is yes. And then finally, the familial risk, familial testing. This is a really important aspect to genetics. This is different than all the other biomarkers that we talk about because we're not just talking about the patient in front of us, but we're talking about family members that also may be at risk, that also may need testing. And so these are are some of the real key reasons why germline testing is important and why, again, thanks for being here and and what, what we hope to really cover all of this ground. In terms of the agenda, Got my introdu- introduction that we just completed. Dr. Gamella is going to go through the basic comp- uh, basic concepts and overall impact of prostate cancer screening in, in the context of germline mutations. We'll take some time for Q&A. Um, please don't be bashful with questions. I will uh, give, give a talk on the implications of germline testing in localized prostate cancer. Again, we'll hopefully take some time for Q&A. And then last, Dr. Chang will talk about the implications of germline testing in advanced prostate cancer. So that's, that's the game plan. And with that, i got to hand this over to Dr. Gramella. Thank you. thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Todd. Uh, again, welcome, everybody. You guys should get double credit for being here on a Sunday morning in New Orleans at 730. So thank you for joining us. Um, and also, I want to thank uh, all of you for being here, because this is really one of the cutting edge areas in the future of prostate cancer and urology. This is something precision medicine centric. Um, and the fact that you all are here uh, means that you're going to be really on the next wave of things. You know, robot, robots, the yesterday's news. Genetics, genomics uh, uh, are really going to be the future of everything that we're going to be talking about in all diseases, but the big one today is really uh, is really prostate cancer. So why are we interested in this area? Well, something very interesting happened in 2003. After 13 years, the NIH was able to map the entire human genome of 3.2 billion base pairs and made a big deal about this. I mean, this took 13 years to accomplish. But a little thing also happened this year that they completed the sequence of the human genome. What they didn't tell us was back in... Um, 2003 they had gotten like 92, 93 percent of the genome which they considered to be like the end all be all and it was really just this year that they actually completed the whole genome uh, sequencing. We haven't seen too much in the prostate cancer world right now <clears throat> but this is a rapidly uh, uh, a robbing field as I'll show you in a moment. Well. Things were pretty quiet for about 10 years, and then two very important things happened in the field of medicine. The first was Angelina Jolie and her public discussion about having an inherited genetic risk for breast and ovarian cancer. And uh, I think really she deserves a lot of credit because this is the first time I think the public was really aware of the fact that there could be a gene passed down from different generations to increase the cancer risk. But another interesting thing happened that same year, and that was one company for essentially 10 years had the, the lock on BRCA1, BRCA2 testing. Um, But eventually, the Supreme Court decreed that no company could really patent a naturally occurring or mutated gene. So that's why everything then really started over the last eight or nine years with many other companies, other technologies getting involved with genetic testing. Now, to put a little bit of things in perspective, how rapidly this is happening, and also what's the implications that we now have for prostate cancer screening, before 2016, you could not find any information in the NCCN guidelines about prostate cancer unless you looked at the hereditary breast and ovarian cancer guidelines. In those guidelines, our medical ecology colleagues like Dr. Chang and others identified the fact that you want to know what, ladies who have male relatives, they may also have this gene that may increase their risk of having prostate and male breast cancer. It was in 2016 that for the first mention that in the NCCN guidelines, if you've got a family history of BRCA1 or BRCA2 positivity, should be considered in the screening algorithm. Well, by 2017, it was baked in there. Uh, It was really the first million hereditary genetic considerations. 2018, They talked about considering germline testing based on the risk, and the bottom line, by 2020, it's now baked into the guidelines. Germline is recommended based on the risk when you do a familial uh, uh, family tree. So at Jefferson the Kimmel Cancer Center, we've been very proactive in this area. In fact, we've had two international consensus meetings with my colleagues here uh, also participating. Um, The uh, role of genetic testing in prostate cancer, we brought together an collected group of individuals from medical oncologists, geneticists, ethicists, basic science researchers to come up with some general guidelines or recommendations um, about uh, how to approach this topic. So what I want to do in the next few minutes is sort of set the stage for the things that uh, Dr. Morgan and Dr. Chang are going to talk about, run you down with some, run down some basic concepts that will allow you to really go further into the important concepts that uh, Todd and Heather are going to talk about. So, what I want to do is kind of bring you back to high school biology, um, talk a little bit about some basic science uh, and molecular biology when it comes to screening. So when we talk about genetics, it's traditionally the study of individual genes. You know, we all did those fruit fly experiments and, and kind of those things uh, uh, back in, in college. Uh, but traditional genetics has really now moved forward to the concept of genomics. So the word gen- genome refers to the entire set of genes in an organism. But today we kind of use the term genomics and genetics interchangeably because it's much more complex, and we don't usually talk about one gene but the interaction of many different genes and in the environment uh, causing a variety of diseases and causing, including prostate cancer. So again, everybody knows the old uh, uh, Watson and Crick uh, DNA base pairs, AT, GC, uh, and basically... Um, All our cells, except for red blood cells, have the 23 chromosomes. Um, Turns out, though, and this is the interesting thing about mapping the human genome, most of our DNA is actually non-coding. Probably 80 to 90% is what we call dark DNA. We really don't know what it's doing, and this is going to consume researchers for many, many, many years. Terminology-wise, BRCA1 is a naturally occurring gene But when we say MBRCA1, for example, it refers to the mutated one. So most of the genes we're going to be talking about actually are going to be mutated genes today. A little bit more basics. Exons are the sequence within a gene that makes the RNA transcripts, that basically makes all the proteins in our body that make, that make us a unique organism. Introns are that dark part of the DNA. We don't really know what's going on, and actually the majority of our DNA uh, is a, an intron that really doesn't code for protein, but must have some other um, uh, impact on our uh, existence that it's being looked into. I'm just going to mention the concept of SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms because there's a little bit of confusion that there's between a SNP and germline and somatic mutations. And really, SNPs are just these variations in the DNA that give us different eye color, different hair color. And I think the term of polymorphism is if you see this change in at least 1% of the population. And basically, um, right now, this is really used mostly for screening purposes. uh, And the crosstalk between germline testing and looking at hundreds of different subtle changes in the uh, the DNA sequence known as polymorphisms or something that's going to be an area that we're going to be learning a lot about in the future. And lastly, you hear the word epigenetics. And basically, what is epigenetics? Basically, that's an on and off switch for the gene. It's not actually a change in your DNA sequence, but methylation happens, and it's sort of like an on-off switch. Certain parts of the gene are turned off when they get methylated, and that's what the term epigenetics is. Again, not to talk much about it, but I wanted to give you guys some uh, background when you hear these different terms used. So... We all are familiar with karyotyping. Karyotyping has been with us for the last 30 or 40 years. In karyotyping you can determine major chromosome breaks, but you can't see the subtle ones that we're going to be talking about going forward, talking about uh, genomic changes, talking about changes in DNA sequence. So most of the chromosome DNA changes in cancer are not detected unless you use these very exquisite molecular techniques that we're going to talk about. We could not do this if it was not for computational biology. Here's just an example of a normal BRCA2 gene. This image is one of small area. This is 12 pages long. This is the magnitude. This is why we're talking. It took them so long to sequence the human genome because you have to go back and make sure you're not making mistakes. Uh, and that's the big problem, and that's why it took 13 years for different techniques to develop, and we'll talk a minute about next-generation sequencing and how that has become so important. But when you talk about mutated genes, there's not, and this is a big issue. This is where we get involved with, and I don't want to go off too much on the, uh, on the uh, what I call recreational 23andMe, but they don't really necessarily do a deep dive Uh, 23andMe, some of those recreational genomics that patients could just send their saliva, they're not looking at hundreds and hundreds of BRCA genes, for example. And I don't know, I have a little bit of a problem with that, and we'll see if Dr. Chang or Dr. Morgan have a problem with it. They just look at the three founder genes, for example. So if a patient gets a buccal swab, send it off to 23andMe, they get a negative screen. Well, that's just for the major genes. A real genetic testing company will look at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of potential alterations in the genes. So remember, there's just not one mutated BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM check, whatever it might be. There are actually hundreds of them out there, and it gets quite complicated. So this term deep sequencing, you probably hear it, next generation sequencing. This has been the magic bullet that allows technology to rapidly Uh, interrogate a sample uh, and this is something that developed over the 13 years of the uh, NCI genome project and this allows essentially very rapid sequencing of large numbers and in fact 10 years ago if we were in this area we might just order one BRCA1 or one BCR2. Today panels are the way to go, you get a large number of genes, once you put that chip in you can get hundreds of different genes, as we're going to show you in a couple of minutes. This is kind of my spin on uh, modern tumor evaluation, going from imaging to gross pathology to histology. Well, now we're down beyond the chromosomes, and molecular pathology is one of our big areas in the field of medicine. We're actually getting molecular reports beyond just the histology, (coughs) but very specific genomic sequences. Now, this is probably the money slide. And I would be so happy if I saw you in two weeks you remembered this slide. The concept of germline versus somatic mutations. Most of what we're talking about today in this first part is going to be about germline mutations. And later on, when Heather gets into therapeutics, she's going to be talking about both of these concepts, both germline and somatic mutations. So germline mutations are what you get from your mother and father. They are inherited, they may be in your siblings, depending on uh, how the genes uh, cross-pollinate each other. Somatic mutations are what I like to call the wild west of the tumor. Anything can go wrong in a tumor. It might not necessarily be inherited, but you can have all sorts of genetic alterations that show up in the tumor, but don't show up in the inherited germline. And as we'll stress over and over again today. When you're doing somatic testing of a tumor to look for genetic alterations, you really need to do both genetic and genomic testing, because sometimes the germline may show up in the tumor, and sometimes in the tumor you may get a completely different uh, panel of mutated genes. So again, the tumors may also have the germline mutation, but it's important to remember they also may have their own independent uh, mutations present. Now, these are kind of three buckets I like to look at, inherited testing, genomic profiling, and then genomic tumor sequencing. The one in the middle is one that urologists are generally familiar with. This is genomic profiling that looks at specific proprietary molecular signatures not necessarily germline, not necessarily somatic, but it's their proprietary decipher, Prolaris, oncotype confirm, and these have been used by us in urology for many years for treatment decisions. We're kind of not really talking about that today. What we're talking about is either things that you get inherited from your family or things that happen in the tumor. So for example, most of what we're going to talk about is the inherited cancer testing where you look at Um, genes that you may have inherited from your parents either by a buckle smear or by blood testing. And we're using these today for screening. We're going to talk about cascade testing of other members of the family. And it also helps us to decide for uh, treatment and clinical trials. The other one is genomic tumor sequencing. This is really a hot topic right now in oncology, where you go in, you get a biopsy of the tumor. As we'll we'll learn later, the the PARP inhibitors are all pretty much based on this concept of uh, genomic tumor sequencing. Now, one of the big areas carrying on right now is liquid biopsy, and what is that? That is identifying circulating cell-free DNA that's being shed by the tumor. So while a lot of somatic Tumor biopsies are done with a needle biopsy of a liver med, a retroperitoneal node, et cetera. We can also today use some technologies that may help us if you don't have a large tumor to biopsy in a patient with metastatic-resisting cancer, you can usually do a, a, a liquid biopsy. So this somatic testing concept is something that has been used extensively in the development of drugs and essentially you send this sample off to a company such as um, Foundation or um, Caris or one of the other companies, and they look at a whole panel of genes. They look at all these different genes out there. You see many of them that we're going to be talking about, BRCA1, BRCA2, uh, ATM. It's a complete panel. Remember, they're looking for the wild west of the tumor. They're looking for anything that might be in there that may help direct testing. On those reports, you hear about other things known as tumor mutational burden, as well as hearing about um, microsatellite instability. We'll talk about it at the end. Those are other factors that today might allow you to practice precision medicine and, for example, Treat a patient with, with metastatic prostate cancer with pembrolizumab, for example, but it has to be based on this somatic testing. And again, we'll talk more about it. So, again, tissue biopsy is most common. Liquid biopsy is becoming very hot. Um, and this, again, identifies what we call actionable mutations. What are they? They are mutations that tend to respond to a specific therapeutic agent. For example, the PARP inhibitors um, may be active in about 20% of cases of metastatic castrate resistant disease, uh, and they look at what's known as the uh, homologous repair genes, which we'll talk about in a minute, and of course, Pembrolizumab is out there. Um, I mean, really, the, uh, the, the Pembro is now got, I think, what, about 17 or 18 different indications in tumors, but we can use it in prostate cancer if you meet these criteria of mismatch repair genes, the Lynch syndrome genes that are noted there, and other uh, issues. So this is a very hot area right now, is liquid biopsy. Uh, and there's a lot of work that's been done uh, in this area. And while it's not perfect, there is a high concordance between what's going on with matched tissue biopsies and matched circulating cell-free DNA. Basically, you've got DNA from the tumor circulating uh, Um, circulating in the bloodstream and that can be captured. So it gets a little tricky for reasons that uh, maybe Heather will talk about, but the bottom line is this is a rapidly evolving area and maybe a lot easier than sending somebody to IR and, you know, biopsy a retroperitoneal lymph node or something like that. One other concept I just want to touch on is this issue of microsatellite instability. Very important today if you're going to put a patient on pembrolizumab. Microsatellites are these repeated DNA sequences that occur, and when there's a problem with our DNA germline, the genes that protect our integrity of our DNA, you might end up with something called a mismatch repair. Um, And if you have a very high level of microsat instability, it means you've had a lot of problems with your DNA repairing itself when it goes to duplicate. And microsatellite instability, if it's high, is one of the indications for a drug such as pembrolizumab. So when you test for germline mutations, and I'll be the first one to step back and tell you that I am blessed at Jefferson and the Kimmel Cancer Center where we have great genetic counselors that we work with. To me, I think I'm a little uncomfortable making a lot of recommendations, but we rely a lot on our genetic counselors. but I think as urologists we need to understand these concepts. When you do a germline mutation, you may get different results back. You may see something pathogenic or likely pathogenic. You might see something benign or likely benign, but the tricky one here is the VUS a variant of unknown significance and you will get this back when you send some patients off for a buccal smear and a germline test. What does that mean? These VUSs are in our uh, NCI gene bank and they're identified sequences. Somebody at University of Washington or Michigan identified this new DNA pathway, let's say for BRCA1, they send it at a gene bank and over the years that is looked at and eventually somebody will determine, hey, you want to know what? This is not really a pathogenic gene, so it's probably okay. But this is one of the tricky subtleties you get involved with. If you're going to start to order genetic testing, understand that you may get a report back such as VUS. and what does that mean to you? You need to follow that patient because six months later or a year later, they may come back with a change. And lastly, just for completely sake, the polygenetic risk scores, um, these look at the SNPs These are not mutated genes, but those are the variations that we have in our genes that we talked about. Uh, Right now there's been about 140 or 150 SNPs that are associated with prostate cancer. You see how they're identified, TRMT11, WBSCR2. Um, These are, again, not pathogenic genes, but just certain changes in our DNA um, that may increase the risk for, for prostate cancer. Next, let me talk about prostate cancer inherited risk. At the end of the day, only about 10 to 15 percent of our patients have an actually clearly identified mutation. In other words, there's no doubt that grandfather had prostate cancer, the father has prostate cancer, and the children have prostate cancer. That is only in about 10 to 15 of our percent of our cases. However, when we identify that, it completely changes how we should approach those patients. The next category here, which is again about 15 or 20 percent, are familial. Familial is it kind of smells like there's something going on in the family. You know, you got two sisters with breast cancer, maybe the father had prostate cancer, but you can't identify a clearly inherited gene at this point in time. So we put that in the familial bucket. Lastly, sporadic is still most of our prostate cancer patients. You can't find an inherited germline mutation in those patients. However, when you find a hereditary gene, it's very important. Another important concept I'd like you to leave here with today is that these mutated genes do not cause prostate cancer but they increase your risk of prostate cancer for reasons that we'll talk about. So again, they don't cause prostate cancer, but they allow whatever trigger starts prostate cancer to go on unabated. Uh, But remember these genes that we call pathogenic genes also increase the risk of other cancers in the individual and in the family, breast ovarian, pancreatic, male breast cancer and the like. So again, as we mentioned, we do genomic and genetic testing to treat, uh, to make decisions about screening, but also for some treatment options. This is sort of a short list, and uh, as Oliver Sartor talks about, there is a very long tail of many, 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 many prostate cancer-associated genes out there. However, these are kind of the big dogs, ATM, BRCA1, 2, check. If you look at the mechanism, almost all of them are involved with a dysfunctional DNA response uh, pathway that heals your DNA when there's a problem, when your DNA replicates. So most of these genes are associated with something wrong with DNA uh, repair pathway mechanisms. I point out the HoxB13 because that's the really inherited gene that is most identifiable in those groups of men under the age of 50 or 55, where every man in a family just about has it, that's got something to do with the androgen receptor pathway. But that's very, very, very rare. The common ones that we see all have to do with DNA repair. So here's this concept that we're talking about. All of these genes that we're talking about are involved in the DNA damage response and repair pathway. And our DNA really has an incredible ability to maintain itself and protect itself. But once you have one of these mutated genes that normally goes in and helps the DNA repair itself or replicate itself in exact copy. Once they get messed up a little bit, that's when you start to get genetic predisposition, and when one of these DNA repair pathways is altered because of a mutated BRCA1, BRCA2, your DNA repair starts to go a little bit hairwire, and that's you end up going from a precancerous state to a cancerous state, and these are very common in prostate cancer. Um, this is another one of the most important uh, slides that I'm going to talk about uh, this morning, germline mutations in metastatic prostate cancer. Uh, this is actually uh, Colin Pritchard, who uh, Dr. Chang knows very well, who is her life partner out in uh, Washington, who uh, also is a major researcher in this area. Um, And uh, this important paper really told us that if you look at germline mutations, inherited alterations in these genes increase the risk of... uh, Metastatic prostate cancer, and again, castrate resistant prostate cancer. The early studies talked about 11 or 12 percent, but as time goes on, that number is creaking towards 20 to 25 percent the more genes that you, uh, that you look at. So, again, these BRCA mutations that are mutated, again, we're going to use them as the model. They are DNA damage response genes. When they're mutated, they can't keep the integrity of your DNA well going forward. If you've got one of these mutated genes, you've got an increased risk of developing prostate cancer, increased risk of developing high-grade metastatic, and sadly, ultimately dying from prostate cancer. So this may be only 10 to 15%, maybe 20% of our patients, but when you identify this, it requires very specific attention on that family. And remember, it also increases the risk of the individual for developing other cancers as well. Anybody who doesn't believe this, this is a very nice paper out of Hopkins from Bill Isaacs about six years ago now. This is a long timeline across the bottom, but you can see if they've got a germline mutation in some of these genes, you can see the dramatic uh, decrease uh, or increase in mortality of these men. That is a 10, 15, 20, 25 year life expectancy. So again, we got to treat these genes respectfully. They are potentially life threatening. Um, about one in 400 patients carry a mutated BRC, one or two. And again, if you happen to run into a partner uh, that maybe has a gene as well, you might increase your uh, your risk of having this. But again, There's no question that breast cancer is eons ahead of us. And breast cancer, remember, BRCA refers to the breast cancer. That's where the BRCA1, BRCA2 comes from. So they know a lot more about it. But you can also look at the incidence of mutated genes in breast cancer extraordinarily high. Not so high for prostate, but you can see elevated for pancreas and male breast cancer. So again, the impact of these genes in breast cancer is massive. It's not as significant in prostate cancer, but when you identify it's very important. Remember, these inherited mutated germline genes also increase the risk of family members with the gene, as we talked about, not only an individual, but other uh, family members. Next, a little bit on practical considerations. Today, we have some very nice companies, and this is, again, just a partial list that's out there. Commercial labs pretty much have the same genes that we've been talking about. There are some general cancer panels at the bottom that are not specific for prostate cancer, but if you order one of these gene panels, they also tend to include most of the prostate cancer uh, genes. Um, We are very lucky at Jefferson, and again, I would not know anything about this unless it was from my colleague uh, Dr. Vita Geary who joined us at Jefferson about seven or eight years ago who brought us to the modern era. We incorporated this in our multidisciplinary clinic and we've been offering preliminary genetic screening for our patients who come into the clinic since about 2014. We don't test them when they walk in because they're there for treatment decisions, but we sort of plant the seed and we talk to them a little bit about once your treatment's over, um, particularly for localized disease, we'll come back and visit. Little different when they walk in the door with metastatic Prostate cancer, we tend to be a little bit more aggressive about the uh, screening. But my colleagues here, uh, uh, Todd Morgan up at the University of Michigan, they also have risk clinic stratification uh, where they look at um, uh, looking at these different factors, including some of the molecular diagnosis that we talked about to decide how to approach patients. And likewise, um, Heather's really been leading this charge with some uh, nationally uh, uh, funded and... uh, 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 aggressive programs to really identify men with metastatic cancer. And I know Heather will probably talk a little bit about that, Um, but uh, working on getting this all across the United States, the opportunity for men to have genetic uh, testing and counseling. Just a little comment, a few comments about counseling for inherited cancer risk. This is where our genetic counselors help us so much. They really sit down and do a deep dive with the patient and talk about a lot of factors including family uh, history. So this concept of cascade testing, when you identify a certain pattern of men with different DNA, uh, with different tumors, either in men or in women, again, we we bring forth this concept of cascade testing. Once you identify a man with the gene, who else in the family should be tested? And this is where it gets a little tricky, and this is where you really need a genetic counselor to work with you. The other thing I need to mention to urologists is this concept of the GINA Act, Genetic Information Information Non-Discrimination Act. You have to be very careful. When you have a patient with metastatic cancer, you've identified a germline mutation, that is very important for that patient. But you have to be careful how far out you go on the family because while GINA prohibits genetic discrimination in health insurance, it doesn't protect an individual in life, disability, or long-term care insurance. So you've got to be a little bit careful when you go on the pathway of cascade testing of other family members, what is the implications. And lastly, just a few comments about the emerging role of genetic testing in prostate cancer. This is the laundry list of different things that we're doing now with screening. We're using it for active surveillance in selected cases, treatment decisions, precision medicine. So this is the future. This is where we are with prostate cancer going forward. So why is germline and somatic testing important? Risk assessment, do this patient have aggressive disease? Is this something that other members of the family should be tested? Prevention, we're not there yet. But again, concepts of developing prevention strategies in patients with known BRCA1 or BRCA 2 mutations. Prognosis, <clears throat> absolutely critical. And Todd and, uh, and Heather will talk a little bit more about this. And lastly, precision medicine. We need to do somatic testing to individualize treatment for our patients. This is a long list of when you should consider genetic germline testing or counseling. The big ones I want to point out in NCC on guidelines, absolutely anybody with metastatic prostate cancer, either at initial presentation or when they develop castrate-resistant disease, high-risk localized cancer or cribriform. Also, if you've got somebody with 10 out of 10 cores with a Gleason, uh, you know, 4 plus 4 prostate cancer should be considered. And Askenazi Jews, the reason that's important, BRCA1, BRCA2 were first identified in the Eastern European Askenazi Jewish population. And if someone has some Eastern European roots that might be something you want to think about with the uh, testing and of course other cancers in the family. So from a basic, the basic concepts that I like to set the stage for uh, Todd and Heather, very rapidly evolving recommendations and decision making. Remember, it's only been the last three or four years we these have actually been in our NCCN guidelines. We identified the most critical genes today, but there's a lot more genes out there, but these are the most common ones. There is a high prevalence of germline mutations uh, in men with castrate-resistant prostate cancer, uh, as uh, as Heather's husband first described several years ago. Maybe up to 20 to 25 percent, in fact, of men with metastatic castrate-resistant disease. Meta- all metastatic patients, localized, high-risk patients, de novo metastatic patients, and certainly castrate-resistant should be get germline testing. Somatic testing. Remember, it's complementary to germline. So if someone is in third-line or fourth-line treatment for prostate cancer, they really should probably have uh, somatic testing of the tumor. Again, liquid biopsy becoming increasingly common. Urologists are not doing too much of this. Certainly medical oncologists are taking the lead. Just something to be aware of. And again, genetic counselors I think are very essential. Uh, And again, there's a lot of work being done on developing better... uh, Uh, Prostate cancer genetic uh, panels that are out there. So again, I thank you very much for uh, your attention and uh, being with us this morning.
1: This is on. Oh, good. Hey, that was awesome. Thank you. Wow, I love um, I love following your talk because it's just like it's. It just sets everything up.
2: That's it sets it up. It sets it up. I make, it, I make do it, do it easy
1: for you. You do. So that's, that's, uh, why, you, that's why they bring me in. It is. That's, that's, why, <laughs> that's, that's what I need. Um, yeah, you, I mean, you just cover. The, it's the foundations of, of everything. that You know, what comes from that framework is how we apply this to localized prostate cancer and how we apply this to advanced prostate cancer. Um, we, we do have a few minutes. Uh, any questions, please come to the mic if you Thinking about questions, and we got we got a couple minutes. I'm gonna. Um, I, I, I have a question for either of you, which is um, so. Let's say a patient comes in. You know, they've had um, 23andMe, and they say, "Oh, I've got a BRCA mutation based on 23andMe." I mean, how does your genetics group address that? Or either of you? I'll,
2: I'll let Heather go first because they have a dim view of 23andMe. But that's my. I'm biased against 23andMe when it comes to. Medical decision
3: making. Yeah, yeah I think
0: that um, what Dr. Gamella said and, and we've alluded to is exactly right, which is 23andMe is a recreational test and it's absolutely insufficient for any medical purposes. So I would just think of it as totally different, um, not adequate, might give you some clues, but really is not sufficient at all. Yeah. So, really, so, so you, you know, do
1: confirmatory testing with a standard yeah. test, so right? You
2: gotta, they have to have real genetic testing, not the recreational one.
1: Please. I've got one question. Could you elaborate how the connection
4: between the DNA repair pathway and the hormonal axis is? Because I was wondering why breast cancer, prostate cancer, they're all hormonal active
1: cancers. How they're connected to the V L C A DNA repair pathway? So let me. Sh- so so you're asking. How, so um, wh- how does the have do DNA damage repair genes drive prostate cancer? when we think of the context of prostate cancer usually being AR-driven? Yeah, for example, because like there are, when you just think of theory, this repair mechanism of BSCR is also active in should be also active in other cancers, but when right. you look, it's only certain cancers, and some of them are hormonal active, like also breast cancer. So I was wondering by you are all experts how the connection is, because I don't see it di- directly. Sure. If, if you guys want to take a stab,
0: I think it's kind of speculatory. I think you're asking a great question that many, many other people are also wondering, and and many really, uh, you know, amazing scientists are also interested in studying. I mean, I would sp- hypothesize it could be that these are organs that are homo- hormonally driven, and so, you know, there's periods of extreme growth and then periods of quiescence, and that probably is a biological process that makes you more vulnerable to. You know, if there is a, a tendency to DNA damage repair, essentially when, there's in, when, when an organ is in that process of rapid growth, it's going to be more likely to sort of you know, take off. That, that's speculation, though.
1: Can you do a germline testing in a liquid biopsy or have to be only tissue diagnosis?
0: I think Dr. Morgan's probably going to cover that, so. Oh, okay. Great question, though.
1: I missed the question, about it, but whatever oh, it is, so I'll cover it. Can
0: can we do a uh, germline t- testing from a, b- a blood test or? Oh, great.
1: So from germline testing from a blood test, we are going yeah. to cover this. Great. So um, the, the purpose of this talk is really to, again, take the foundations that we have from Dr. Grimella and apply it. And the key questions that I want to look at are which patients with localized prostate cancer should undergo genetic testing? How do we implement genetic testing? And should we treat patients with low-risk prostate cancer differently if they have a BRCA mutation? And should we treat patients with high-risk localized prostate cancer differently? This says BRCA mutation, but, you know, I would all say really any DNA damage repair mutation that we find on genetic testing. And, again, this is like, this is framework that Dr. Gamilla already presented at some level, but it's really important, so we have, you know, genetic predisposition in many ways. We have all these common variants we think of as SNPs and people. learn about these through these so-called GWAS, genome-wide association studies. So tiny little changes, tiny little effect size for each of these mutations. Then higher up we have these rare uncommon variants like BRCA1 and BRCA2. So they're less common but they have a greater effect. And then in some diseases, not prostate cancer, there are very rare variants that have really large effect sizes. And so this is kind of the pyramid of genetic risk in general. And it turns out that they like all of these things are really important in prostate cancer and they um, and they're independent of each other. And so this is a I think a really good study published a year ago that said okay, if you have let's look at family history, let's look at rare pathogenic mutations, a few of them, so that's the RPM, is like BRCA1 and BRCA2, a check two is in here. And then looks, let's look at GRS a, a genetic risk score. So this is like the combination of SNPs that Dr. Gramella talked about. And each of these is predictive of prostate cancer incidence and mortality, and each of these is independent of the other. So, you know, we really have to think about how do we apply this in, in the context of those kind of three different domains of heritable risk. And then this study is really cool and shows kind of a similar effect. So it said, okay, of, let's, let's look at a huge number of patients, and we'll look at patients, and we'll look to see if do they have one of these rare pathogenic mutations like BRCA1 or 2. And let's also look at their genetic risk score here, polygenic risk score, so a bunch of SNPs together. And in here, dark blue are the non-carriers of the, say, BRCA1 and BRCA2 type mutations, and light blue are the carriers. And odds ratio is on the y-axis of developing prostate cancer. And then on the x-axis is increasing polygenic risk score. And so what you're seeing here is that, of course, as polygenic risk score goes up, the odds of developing prostate cancer go up. But also there's this double stratification where even a higher risk for patients who have, say, BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation. And so even within patients with, say, a BRCA2 mutation, the polygenic risk score still provides additional information. On top of that, they showed that actually you're less likely to have a high score, a polypolyogenic risk score, if you have a BRCA2, say, mutation. and So there's, there's this field is, and this is and just in the last, like, six months, this was published, so we're still constantly learning about these different facets, but they're really, really important. And so one of the big questions we ask is, okay, so I see a patient with localized prostate cancer. What are the odds that they have one of these germline mutations? And, and we have pretty good estimates from a bunch of studies. BRCA1 is about a half percent. BRCA2 is about 1%. ATM, also about a half percent. Many of these are more common and lethal than non-lethal localized prostate cancer. Dr. Gamela showed one paper. And there are differences also based on ancestry. And, and this is another very, very recent paper. I wanted to put it up here. I knew that like, the figure doesn't translate very well in a presentation. It's a great paper. highly recommend it. Take it if you want a deep dive into this. Um, but the colors are a little bit challenging to, to sort out, I'm sure, looking at this. but. I, I'll spend a little bit of time to try to walk through this, and I don't know, the mouse, does this mouse work? No. Um, so the upside is, if you look, say, on the left with a BRCA2 up, which is the top, the top two bars are showing patients of European ancestry. The top one is cases, overall cases, and the next one is aggressive cases. And you can see it's around like 1% of cases overall, and one and a half percent of aggressive cases, kind of like you'd expect BRCA2 is more likely to be mutated in patients with aggressive disease. If you look on the right figure, at the same two bars, they're dialed back a lot. And so that that's patients of African descent. And so it's, it's illustrative, I think, of how, um, how there are differences based on gene all the way down. There are It's illustrative of how there are differences based on ancestry. Um, and so we can we can use this type of data and say okay going down and you we know what are the odds of, a, of an ATM mutation in somebody with localized prostate cancer again it's about a half percent and so on and um, and so the, so I think this is uh, this is important for me when I talk to patients because you know when, when we're talking about genetic testing one you know somebody it's somebody say it who has a Gleason nine cancer maybe maybe they've got a family history of breast cancer and we're talking about genetic testing and the patient I think you, many of you. have, probably found if, you've, if um, you have broach this topic with patients, many times, most times, maybe the patient assumes they have a mutation, right? I've got prostate cancer. It's aggressive prostate cancer. I'm sure I've got a mutation. But really, odds are that they don't. And so, so uh, you know, I think it's really important to kind of convey these nuances, and we'll talk more about that. But having some sense of the likelihood of each of these mutations is, is really important. So which prostate cancer patients should undergo germline testing? And Dr. Gamella showed a slide on this there are many separate, different guidelines. The one that I tend to point to is this genetic familial high-risk assessment of breast, ovarian, and pancreatic cancer. It's also very much in line with the Philadelphia Consensus Conference, and I th- it probably derived a lot of the prostate cancer information from that consensus conference. And say, well, how come it doesn't even mention prostate cancer in the title? And so would I. It doesn't, but it has a ton of prostate cancer recommendations in there. So it's a really good spot. If you use NCCN guidelines, it's a great guideline for this topic, Dr. Mella kind of went through this. It's what we think about by tumor characteristics, certainly metastatic. Also, introductory or cribriform it, um, increases the likelihood of a germline mutation risk. We talked about by family history, ancestry. And, you know, we can try to memorize all these. In reality, I think the way that a lot of us apply this is, okay, the patient's clearly got a strong history of breast and ovarian cancer, breast or ovarian cancer in the family. patient's clearly have got a history of prostate cancer. Many, we know many people don't know their family history all that well. Um, and, so, um, and so, know this, know, know these cancers are important. Um, I don't necessarily recommend that. You don't you need to have that guideline up in your clinic room to, to look and reflect. Um, but if, it's, if, if you see that family history there and it crosses your mind, it's probably a good idea to broach the topic. And, again, if a patient, say, has a somatic mutation, we saw the key slide that Dr. Gamella showed, the differences between somatic and germline, but if you do somatic testing and you see a mutation that looks like a BRCA2 mutation, the patient may also have a germline BRCA2 mutation, and so we recommend germline testing there. If you look at the NCCN prostate cancer guidelines, there's actually been a big effort to synergize these guidelines between the two, and they're pretty darn close. This is kind of the big picture high level view, low and intermediate risk patients, Um, We recommend germline testing if there's a strong family history or intraductal or cribriform histology. We recommend germline testing in general for patients with high-risk prostate cancer or for metastatic prostate cancer. So again, what happens when we deploy germline testing in our clinical practice? This study shows, you know, the so of, so about 17% of the men tested with prostate cancer, and this included localized and metastatic prostate cancer patients. About 17% we found to have a germline variant, and then it shows the relative incidence of each of these mutations. And if you look down the line, I've kind of put up here that Colin Pritchard and colleagues study, so that was an advanced prostate cancer cohort. If you kind of compare the, the relative frequencies of each of these mutations, it's pretty similar. So, right, so what are we gonna find? We're gonna find a whole lot of BRCA2 mutations. We're gonna find check 2 mutations, ATM, and then it starts to go down after there. Okay, so how, how do we do it? I'm curious, how many uh, urologists are here? Great, so mostly urologists. Um, any other clinicians? Okay, and um, how many of you do the like pre-test counseling of germline, you know, gen- genetic testing with your patients? And then how many re- would just refer to genetic counselors for discussion? Yeah, okay. And so, first of all, I'd say both are absolutely appropriate. I I think think we've all found that access to genetic counselors can be very difficult, especially depending on on where you live. Um, And probably found that sometimes, oftentimes, when we make that referral, you know, maybe there's a three-month delay. The patient doesn't make the appointment, um, and and not all patients end up kind of going through and meeting with a genetic counselor. So, one approach. Is, and so, you know, Dr. Gamella mentioned, um, you know, in their clinic, they're very, very closely integrated with the cancer genetics folks make that referral. But another way to approach this is for us as clinicians to perform the pretest counseling and discuss this with patients. Now, how do we do that? Well, we need to define the criteria for testing. We talked about using NCCN guidelines or the Philadelphia Consensus Conference guidelines. Taking a good family history, we'll talk about that. Talk about how we counsel patients have some understanding of insurance coverage and fixed out-of-pocket costs. Dr. Gamella showed a slide with the different testing options, for example, and just about all of those have some, some cap, um, some, some cap for the patient out-of-cost. We order the test, and then, then you can send to genetic counseling if they have a positive test or a variant of uncertain significance. So how do we do family history? Well, we have to go beyond just do you have a family history of prostate cancer? I'm not saying you have to take a whole family pedigree, but we have, have to take a little bit deeper dive in that checkbox, family history of prostate cancer. When we, you know, this is just this is a pretty simple form. This is what we use in our clinic, but it covers the relevant cancers, the ones that we feel are relevant to prostate cancer, and we're looking at age of diagnosis, and then we're asking about, what you know, do they have metastatic cancer? So, again, we can't just, like, our notes can't just be, like, no family history of prostate cancer and move on. We have to know more. What else do we need to do? So, again, we have to identify patients. We're going to, we're going to explain the purpose of the test, right? So we have to – this doesn't have to be the longest discussion, but it, but we do need to cover this ground. What's the purpose? Why would we do this test? Why Why are you a candidate? How accurate is the test? Well, the answer is it's pretty darn accurate. Nothing is perfect, but it's pretty darn accurate. Um, we have to review possible testing outcomes, and so that means – like any test we order, right? And we're gonna say, well, you know, it's most likely it's gonna be a negative test. About eighty percent of patients are gonna have a negative test, even those at risk. There's a chance, maybe a ten, really ten to twenty percent chance we're gonna find this variant of uncertain significance. That's a gray area. Dr. Gamella covered that. Um, turns out most of those eventually get reclassified as benign, so those um, not pathogenic. And yeah, there's a chance we're gonna find. A, a germline mutation and, and we'll talk about what we're going to do about that if we do, maybe a 10% chance. So discuss testing options, we'll talk about that a little more. Discuss genetic discrimination risks, and Dr. Gimela covered GINA. We give everybody a little bit, a uh, small brochure about GINA, that's, we, we mention it, we cover that ground, what, what the impact is for say life insurance, disability insurance, we have to have that discussion, we can't just order the test without mentioning that. Discussing that because um, that has an impact for, for them well beyond our clinic room. Um, and then we order the testing. Of course, as an ordering provider, our, it's our responsibility to discuss results with the patients. And then we talk about how that might, in fact, impact the prostate cancer. We talk about screening recommendations for other malignancies. This is where we get all of these patients with a mutation. We'll, and we'll talk about this again. Go see a, a genetic counselor. They get additional counseling about this and about cascade testing of family members. We also give this little handout to all of our patients who are undergoing genetic testing. This is a a registry. It's a national registry of patients um, who are undergoing genetic testing. They can enroll if they're willing to contribute their data to this effort. It's really important, and and Dr. Chang will also, I think, talk about another uh, really important registry slash program to also collect this type of data. So this this, most patients I think you'll find are really willing to contribute to the science, and this this type of work is really important. So what are the logistics? Well, um, it's usually a blood or saliva test that gets ordered. We can do a single gene, but, um, you know, virtually, unless there's like a known mutation in the family that needs to be tested for, we do panel testing, includes the basic genes, usually roughly around 20 genes. Talk about it. it could be positive, it could be negative, it could be a VUS. How are, how are we going to handle that? And this is a word of caution, which is you know if you if you start doing this, if you're already doing this, you're going to be have you're going to have the opportunity say you know you're using company X and they're going to come to you and say, well you you can get the standard prostate cancer twenty gene panel, you can do the eighty gene panel, and it's going to be the same cost. It's it's all going to be covered. And so this is a real word of caution because. I would ask you, what are you going to do with that additional information? Are those 60 genes actually relevant to prostate cancer? Do we have the data? The answer is usually not. Usually we don't have that information. Um, and so it becomes like the further away we get from the core you know, 20 or so genes that we know have a role in prostate cancer risk, the further away we get from being able to really use that information to counsel our patients accurately, the more likely we are to create anxiety, the more likely... Um, we are to find a variant of uncertain significance that then again creates anxiety. And so, a word of caution to, to really think carefully. And we don't, we don't use those other, like, the, you know, we get those opportunities to expand the panel to these mega panels, and we don't do that. Um, in terms of, you know, what, when we get the test result back, we refer all of our patients with a pathogenic or likely pathogenic mutation to um, genetic counseling. Do we refer all of our patients with a VUS at this point? Not truly, but I will actually, at that, I will communicate directly with, we as a group would communicate directly with a genetic counselor. Um, does, what do we think about this VUS? Is this someone that maybe needs to see genetic counseling or, um, or not? A big caveat is we've ordered the test. I've ordered the test, for example. The test is a V, it, it comes back as a VUS, say, a BRCA2 variant of uncertain significance. At some point in the future, that VUS may get reclassified. Most of the time it gets reclassified, again, as benign every once in a while, and this has definitely happened um, for one of my patients, it will get reclassified as pathogenic. So that's a big deal. Whose responsibility is that to receive that information and give it to the patient? It's ours, if you order the test, right? As any test that we order. Um, And so we need to make sure when we're working with companies external or internal, if you have in-house labs that do this, that we have a mechanism that we are gonna get that information back to us to be able to then Provide that information to patients. It, so we've had, we've been doing this clinician, urologist, urologic oncologist, medical oncologist directed pretest counseling for several years now. The goal is it was it continues to be can we provide the you know high quality counseling to patients to to really just smooth the workflow, encourage, uh, make it easier for patients to undergo testing. And we and we have used validated survey instruments. To measure this, so we do the te- the counseling. Patients may or may not decide to undergo testing, and we um, and then we then take surveys. And here, it's so dark green or light green is completely satisfied versus somewhat satisfied. Um, and you can see that, you know, for kind of some of these domains, for this, for example, the summary domain at the bottom. How would you rate your satisfaction with counseling overall? Ninety percent were completely satisfied, and almost the entire you know entirety of the rest were at least somewhat satisfied. Um, and, and so I, that, I think this supports the concept that we can do this. Another set of questions, I'll you know I'll highlight for example. Um, uh, yeah, oh, this is one I wanted to look at. It was um, you yeah, know I understood why I was being offered a genetic test. As you can see, you know we're not. I mean, sixty percent strongly agree here. Strongly agree versus agree was is the light green doing. Well, you know, potentially we can do better, I think, we, we, and we continue to tweak and think about how, how to provide information, more materials, offer additional options for pretest counseling. Um, you know, I'm pleased that I had the genetic test. Yes, the vast majority uh, were. I was happy to have the genetic test at one of my existing oncology appointments rather than in a separate appointment with the genetics team. 90% agreed or strongly agreed. So, again, I, just, it, I think it supports the idea that we can do this, but we can't just jump in and order tests. We have to go through the process it doesn't have to take 20 minutes but it has, has to take a, a little bit of our time but it makes a difference the key you know the key the linchpin of all this still remains the genetic counseling team we need to have genetic counselors that we can reliably refer to work with we are very fortunate also to have to work with a genetic counseling team with, that has a ton of expertise and and we can ask questions kind of behind the scenes also and that you know the nice thing is this makes it really efficient for them so if we identify a patient say with a brca2 mutation instead of being a three-month wait for, to get a patient they're going to expedite that patient's appointment and this is a patient with a known new pathogenic mutation it's important um, and, and they'll get in to see somebody quickly well what are the barriers so dr chang and, uh, and, and several other colleagues um, put in a great paper a few years ago highlighting some of the key barriers to doing this, you know, to genetic counseling in general, it's access to counselors, education, you guys are here, so thank you. Um, time, does take some time. You know, there's insurance, variable insurance coverage, it's getting much better. Um, and again, there's, but there, there are caps in terms of fees by most of the companies that do the testing, $200, $250, but we have to know that and know how to deal with that and explain that to patients. And then any time, as you guys know, any time we change workflow, in the clinic, it ain't easy. Um, then Stacey Loeb and colleagues also put out this great paper in the last year. Um, just put that out here if 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 you want to take a, even a um, you know, look at an, another perspective on how do we address these barriers. And so there's you know all these same basically domains that um, that Dr. Chang and colleagues have described. You think about patient factors. What can we do? We can you know we need to standardize our protocols to offer genetic testing to patients. Um, we know we can think about how, how we can work close, more closely with our genetic counselors in the same setting like they do at Jefferson. We need technology support, tools to assist with family history collection. There are tools out there. Um, and, and so, you know, that's a, again a key piece of this. And, um, and then this, you know, the last, is like direct-to-consumer online counseling services through commercial vendors, for example, that, that's okay. And, um, and, and so there are many, many different creative approaches to making this easier. So I would encourage you to think about this and think think about how it might work in your respective clinics. And so the last piece of this, again, is like, okay, well, now we've talked about implementing the testing. Well, what are we going to do with the information? Should should we treat low-risk patients differently, low-risk patients with low-risk prostate cancer differently if they have a BRCA mutation, for example, or another one of these mutations in the DNA damage repair gene? Should we treat patients with high-risk localized prostate cancer differently? A couple of slides that were just kind of very similar, the same. one of them is um, the same as what Dr. Gamella showed, just highlighting that for specific mutations, for example, BRCA1 and 2, the odds of metastasis from prostate cancer are greater. The odds of death from prostate cancer increase with one of these mutations. So here, the BRCA mutations are in red. Patients without mutations are in blue. This, this is a cohort of patients with localized prostate cancer who underwent surgery or radiation, so three-fold increase of odds of metastasis and prostate cancer-specific mortality independent of standard variables. And, yeah, here, here's the wrong Long and uh, colleague study. The genes looked at were BRCA1, 2, and ATM. On the left was the entire cohort localized and patients with localized and, and, um, or advanced prostate cancer. On the right is localized only. Mutation carriers in red, non-mutation carriers in blue. Clearly a difference over many years. Um, in terms of risk of progression. So yeah, at least for some of these, they predispose to more aggressive prostate cancer. And this is a a really controversial study that gets a lot of play and it's good to know about. And and so this is the Johns Hopkins cohort looking at at patients on the left with BRCA1, 2, or ATM mutations, on the right BRCA2 mutations, mutation carriers in red, non-mutation carriers in blue. These are patients on active surveillance. This is the kind of we know about the Johns Hopkins long-term active surveillance cohort, generally a rel- low risk cohort. And on the y-axis is cumulative incidence of any upgrade. And so you'd look at this and you'd say, wow, there's a big spread. Um, and, and one way to interpret these data would be to say, boy, I'm not, especially with BRCA2, I'm not sure if a patient with low-risk prostate cancer for example, and a BRCA2 mutation should be encouraged to do active surveillance, like the rest of our patients. And um, I would definitely urge you to keep to, to, to consider that the jury is still out on this, that um, if you look at the number at risk, especially so look at, you know, on the, the figure on the right, figure B, the number of mutation carriers at time zero is 11. We're talking about 11 mutation carriers and by your right starts to drop off over time, some due to censoring, some, some due to upgrading. Um, and so I would, re- you know, we think, boy, is this enough to change guidelines? Of course it's not enough to change guidelines. Um, it's, it's important. And so how do I handle it? We can talk about, how, you know, how, how you guys would recommend handling it, but how I handle it by, say, boy, you know, you're, you know, you, you, you've got a BRC2 germline mutation. We know you're at risk of developing more aggressive disease, cancer, over time. But in my view, you've got low-risk prostate cancer. You're still eligible for active surveillance. Um, and, in fact, generally encourage those patients still to, to strongly consider active surveillance. But with cl- very close follow-up, knowing that they are at risk of upgrading. But, again, upgrading is something we can catch and still, that's, you know, we do active surveillance very closely so that when we see upgrading, then we um, move on to, to treatment. And another way of kind of supporting that, I think, is to look at this recent study from the, the past collaborative, um, the Prostate Cancer Active Surveillance Study. And so this is a long-standing registry. Patients on the left are the ones who had grade reclassification. Patients on the right are patients who had no grade, grade reclassification. All these patients underwent germline testing. You say, okay, well, what's the, um, you know, what, what are the rate of finding some mutation in a DNA damage repair gene? And it was greater in the grade reclassification cohort 6%, this is the, like the third line down, versus um, 3%. But almost all of that was due to mutations in CHECK2. You'll see the second line from the bottom, which doesn't necessarily really predispose to more aggressive prostate cancer. Um, and if you look at the rates of BRCA1, 2, you know, or BRCA, the bottom line, BRCA1, 2, or ATM mutations, it's identical in, in the two halves. And so this, it, you know, the conclusions from this study are actually finding clinically significant germline mutations in active surveillance cohort is it's a pretty rare event, and at least in this study, it really did not seem to be big differences, if any, between patients with and without greater classification. So we say, what's the impact in patients with localized prostate cancer? Well, if they have low-risk cancer, is active surveillance still appropriate? And I think, in general, absolutely, um, with a slight asterisk, close follow-up for patients with BRCA2 mutations. For patients with high risk prostate cancer, these patients have aggressive prostate cancer. They need um, the they best we can offer them. They need clinical trials. They need multimodality treatment. They are absolutely at higher risk of progression. Um, and, and, and we need to address that appropriately. So, um, to, to conclude this talk, that um, you know, we know this is complex. We need to become experts, it's really important in our practice. Um, and You guys know this, and thanks for coming. Um, we need to be able to convey the pros and cons of testing, which means understanding it ourselves. Um, and you know, at this point, you say, "Well, what?" Because the patients will often say, "Well, okay, wait, is this test going to change my management? Do I need the test?" Like right now, when I see the patient at the at their initial you know, the new new patient visit, um, answer is no in, until we have a clinical trial and then the new adjuvant space, which hopefully we will soon. Um, thanks to Dr. Chang. Um, the, you know, the answer is no, it's not necessarily, it's, it's not going to impact your management in general right now. And I actually will usually defer that, kind of introduce it, and then say, okay, after we get you through treatment, if the patient's going to have treatment, we're going to now, we're going to have that discussion again. Um, but it's really important for understanding their kind of their longitudinal risk of progression, and it's really important for their family when we think about cascade testing and testing family members of those patients. It can have an impact on sisters, brothers, sons, daughters, and so on. So with that, I um, thanks thanks again. Appreciate it. We, can, um, we have a few minutes for questions, if there are any. Yeah. Frost, come, come to the mic, Dr. Petros. Thank
5: you. Great talk, uh, Ferraz Petros University, Lido. So uh, I have patients that I reported again and. Digging in their family history, negative family history for cancer, you send for germline testing. They test positive, including BRCA2. I, I think I have one third of my. I looked at my own patients, so have you had this experience? And then yeah,
1: absolutely. So these are, you know right, these genes aren't. They're not totally 100% penetrant. So. Um, not, yeah, not, not everybody, and this is important for when we get into the cascade testing, not everybody with a, one of these mutations will develop prostate cancer. It's just we know that, and Dr. Gamela showed that, like the, the, that the risk of prostate cancer being like eight times greater for somebody with a BRCA2 mutation, but it's, it's not 100%. That's important, too. Uh,
2: great talks. Yeah, it's, it's very overwhelming because trying to apply all of this information in a very strategic manner, you know, in the talks, I think we're going to need more and more knowledge and education
1: uh, you mentioned the 23 and Me not being uh, more recreational. Is uh, I, I think I was in a talk where you, maybe you would mentioned color.com. Is that a, um, a legitimate testing one?
0: Color would be considered a medical test.
1: Okay. They get, how do they get, they kind of get around this, right? Yeah. They, they have yeah, a little It's.
0: I mean, there trip. are some, I think now there's a component of it that does have a recreational component, but the primary cancer predisposition panel is done with the ordering provider. So there has to be a physician ordering uh, ordering the test for medical purposes.
1: Okay. But, the, but the trick is that they have in-house providers yeah, who will place the order. So, so that's how they get yeah, around and that. And
0: there's also genetic counseling that is associated with it.
2: And though we'd like to try to make this black and white, obviously there's just so much variance to it. If, if a family member is BRCA2 positive
1: with a history of ovarian cancer or whatever, and the patient is negative
3: on the testing. Can we assume that their risk, what do we say about that?
0: I would say you would need to understand the full family history. There are families who have cancer on both sides of the family. So just testing you know one side is not necessarily sufficient. So the context really matters.
1: Okay, thank you. Dr. Lee. Hi, I have a question. Amazing talks, um, thank you. I have a question more of on a population level Um, there are significant disparities between have-nots and the haves in terms of screening, diagnosis, and treatment for prostate cancer. Do you see precision medicine as furthering the gap between the haves and have-nots because of the costs available as well as the information? Yeah, great question. I suspect Dr. Chang has some thoughts on this.
0: I I could. Yeah, (laughs) I think that's an excellent point, and I think you know, a lot of the responsibility that we have as we get educated and as we begin to move forward and implement is to really be thinking about how we are not leaving people behind. And I think that's, you know, all of us here on the panel, hopefully you in the audience, can be moving forward with that lens in mind because it is a really critical responsibility that we have. And, um, I mean, I think Dr. Gamela and Morgan alluded to it. But a lot of, for example, the representation in the databases is not representative. And so the likelihood of uh, finding a variant of uncertain significance is higher because there's less data. So we need to sort of really be thinking about that. But we also need to be doing it thoughtfully because there has been historically mistrust, you know, missteps, things that were done incorrectly that have jeopardized our ability to do this. And I think we really need to be thinking about it. Um, together and really engaging patients um, to figure out how we can do it um, more effectively for them. We can go in with really good intentions, but the receiving of that intention may be different, and the experience may not necessarily be one that fosters, you know, um, you know, in partnership. So,
1: but great question and really important question. I Thanks. So that's yeah, we need to like get take that snippet and send it out on the Twitter sphere, and have everybody needs to hear that conversation. Thanks. One more question before Dr. Chang's talk.
4: Hi there. Uh, thank you for doing this talk. It's a topic that can be a little intimidating. So as a friendly neighborhood urologist, I appreciate it. My wife's actually a breast surgeon. So um, she's sort of appalled at uh, how our institution treats prostate cancer genetics. So this also helps me with standing in my family uh, this talk. Good. <laughs> okay.
1: You're welcome. That's most important.
4: Very important. Thank you. Uh, I have two quick questions. One. One question is about screening. So there are a lot of Ashkenazi Jews in the area that I practice, and I will get a lot of patients who've already been tested, maybe a Cascade, maybe something else, and they wanna know how I'm gonna change their prostate cancer screening. Um, that's, that's my first question. My other question is, this is from my wife's experience. At our institution, they're trying to move away from big panel testing to really focusing only on the um, mutations relevant to the patient's cancer. My wife's department's trying to push off on, push back on that, but that's where we're at. And I wonder if you had any thoughts on
1: those two issues. Yeah. So I mean, I would say in terms of the screening question for an Ashkenazi Jewish population, I think um, we know that people who are, uh, you know, of Ashkenazi Jewish descent are more likely to have these mutations. That said, if a patient has undergone germline panel testing, then that's a really important data point, and I, and I would use that to reassure those patients. I would also closely look at family history. If they have a strong family history, well, again, we showed that I showed that initial slide that family history is still really important. Um, and you know, if they have a strong family history, then I would definitely start thinking about a, you know a little bit more intensive early detection program, and, and you know maybe starting in age forty to forty-five, and, and using say a midlife PSA with a 0.7 or 1 cut off to, to inform intensity of screening beyond that. Um, if a patient you know uh, doesn't have that family history and they don't have a germline mutation, are they still at increased risk be- because they're of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry? I, I doubt it. I mean, I, I don't know. But I doubt it um, from, from, my, from my understanding of the lay of the land. Um, I'm so bad at the, the two-question thing. It's like, you know, I, I mean, I that's just, like, it's, it's, panel, it, it's give would, me again. <laughs> it's like, ah, it's gone. Would,
4: would you, for example, screen a patient more often if they were BRCA2 positive?
1: If they're BRCA2 positive, yes. Yeah. So that's where we have a, a program, and, and the have Jefferson, too, and University of Washington. So patients who are positive for BRCA2 mutation, we get them in for screening. They're eligible at age 35, um, probably age 40 is okay. We use a lower cutoff of of 2 before the age of 50, and PSA of two and a half, above age 50. But we're doing this on a study. um, So I wouldn't say this is the gold standard. We don't know the gold standard yet. But there are, again, we've got programs. It's a program at uh, National Cancer Institute where they'll actually fly the patient out. They can get an MRI um, for free. It's all covered. The TRIP is also free. Um, And so, you know, the answer is absolutely those patients need close screening. and, and, And we're working on figuring out what the answer is, but probably lower PSA thresholds.
4: The, the second question was about tailoring genetic testing to the patient's uh, malignancy. Yeah. Whether or not you guys think that's a good idea. It's a debate at my institution. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think that's actually a really good point, and I think, you know, maybe as we move forward, we can be a little bit more sophisticated about this with time. My own view is that it really depends on the context. So, in the metastatic setting, somebody has pretty severe disease, and there's, and I'll talk about it in a moment, uh, really many treatment options. and so you can allow being more permissive because somebody has a strong phenotype. And so maybe, you know, limiting not just to BRCA1 or 2, but other cancer predisposition gene. Somebody has, that's an affected person. In an unaffected person, no cancer with a risk. Unless you're cascade testing, I don't think it's probably worth doing, you know, the kitchen sink. In that situation, we probably want to only focus on, Single gene, very high penetrance mutations, and I would argue probably not reporting VUSs because that's what causes a lot of the headache, right? So if we, if you're thinking about population screening, then really uh, focusing on the heavy hitters and removing the ambiguity. Um, but that's that's another longer discussion. It's a great question. Thank
1: you. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. So last up, I get to introduce Dr. Chang again, our guest of honor from the University of Washington. Um, thank you again. So she's going to talk about how to apply germline testing in advanced prostate cancer, a really, really important space.
0: Okay, thank you everyone. Um, all right, let me see if I can uh, advance slides. Okay, we've got our disclosures again. All right, so in the next 30 minutes or so, I'm gonna cover these topics so um, what proportion of patients with advanced disease have germline mutations predisposing to prostate cancer what therapies may be applicable for germline uh, DNA damage response patients with metastatic disease what are the mechanisms for targeting DNA repair and what trials uh, are ongoing in DNA repair deficiency settings in prostate cancer so this has um, really really advanced quite a bit in the last few years in, in really exciting ways um, so we've already covered this a bit, but I just to sort of uh, remind you and those of you who may be joining us now, uh, the role of genetics and genomics. So there's um, kind of on the left side the inherited risk. So what is the risk of developing cancer? Um, those are things that we use family history to consider uh, and can be tested with saliva or blood. And then um, also using these same tests in many ways as biomarkers for treatment or management. So are these targeted, are there targeted treatments or targeted management plans for your cancer? and then in the middle is this decision making and genetic counseling and the importance that we have and then of course as we've mentioned risk of other cancers so even if your patient has localized low-risk disease and it doesn't necessarily change their prostate cancer management it might offer options for cancer screening for example for for you know attentiveness to to skin for melanoma or um, colon cancer screening in some cases so that's also important and then of course thinking about cancer risk in family members So this is another schematic, and I'll show it again in this sort of general format of how I think about uh, prostate cancer and the disease spectrum and and germline um, uh, relevance. So on the left side here is early detection. We've talked a little bit about that. There were some great questions. Um, and then active surveillance Dr. Morgan covered and then definitive treatment surgery versus radiation plus or minus androgen deprivation therapy and then kind of at the uh, far right is kind of where where the medical oncologists were sort of most active and these include disease states such as biochemical recurrence non metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer metastatic castration sensitive prostate cancer and metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer so that lower orange box is really where most of the action is at this Point in terms of um, where the trials are, but i 'll also mention that this is um, these discussions and the treatments are being investigated further to or or the the clinical trials are moving towards the middle um, which is really exciting for patients. Um, We've already talked about about um, 11.8 percent or so of men with inherited mutations are found in men with metastatic disease and as mentioned before many of them don't have a family history of prostate cancer or sometimes no family history of cancer at all and so these are really important uh, moments um, in terms of our ability as providers to really make an impact, both for the patient and for their family. Um, And these, of course, when they are germline, are known and suspected cancer predisposition mutations. Okay, so here's a table of uh, germline mutation prevalence across disease states. Um, so starting at the top is the metastatic disease setting, um, you know, 10 10 or 15%, depending, or up to 15%, 16%, depending on the theory. And then metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, there was a paper um, a few years ago, 9.4%. And then in the intermediate high-risk localized disease setting, upwards of 9.5% or 10% in the localized disease lower. Biochemical recurrence is tricky because it's a really heterogeneous population. Um, But uh, these are um, some proportions that you can quote um, for patients. So here's the treatment toolbox for advanced disease. It's actually grown quite a bit even in the last few years since I've given this talk at this meeting um, so in the advanced disease setting, you know, we have uh, ADT, abiraterone, docetaxel, apalutamide, duralutamide, sipuleucel t enzalutamide, cabazitaxel, radium-223, and the newest kit on the block is number 10, uh, lutetium, which was just FDA approved not long ago and has this crazy name of vipivitide tetraxetan, so try to say that three times fast. <laughs> um, uh, so exciting, and then in the bottom is the biomarker-directed toolbox. I guess you could argue maybe that the PSMA Targeted therapies are also biomarker, but genomically biomarker driven. And that's we've referred to already pembrolizumab, which is an immune checkpoint inhibitor, rucaparib, olaparib, both of which are PARP inhibitors, and then uh, and carboplatin, which is an older chemotherapy. All right, so DNA repair defects in prostate cancer. Dr. Gamella has already introduced this. We have different families or teams of uh, what I would call uh, quality control teams uh, in maintaining the integrity of our DNA. So one team is the homologous recombination DNA repair team, and that team is responsible for identifying and correcting double-stranded DNA breaks. Um, And then mismatch repair is when the A to G and C, uh, G to C and A to T um, sort of pairings are not matched correctly. And that's a different team of DNA repair genes or quality control teams, and that's the mismatch repair. Um, And so those result in different types of mutations. Um, and are uh, associated in different proportions in the metastatic setting. So as has been mentioned before, in tumors, there are about 20 to 25% of cancers uh, of metastatic disease that have uh, mutations in homologous recombination DNA repair, and those are BRCA1, BRCA2, PALB2, ATM, check one, check two. Um, although there's some nuance there, and about 12% of them exist in the germline. So those represent what we've talked about, the inherited cancer predisposition. Um, and then on the right is um, the mismatch repair, which is approximately 5 to 7% in the metastatic setting, and then maybe 3% in the localized disease setting, and 20% represent uh, Lynch syndrome. So not as common, but certainly important to know about and the treatment implications I'll talk about further but for the homologous recombination would be PARP inhibitors and platinum and then for the mismatch repair would be immune checkpoint inhibitors This is really quickly, I I won't spend a lot of time on this, BRCA2 mutations in response to carboplatin-based therapy, which is actually, uh, we talked a little bit about the breast cancer field. So breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, other cancers associated with homologous recombination do use platinum. And we haven't historically for prostate cancer, but it looks like it's very effective, especially for patients who have BRCA2 mutations. Um, And then the phase three PROfound study was reported not long ago, um, studying olaparib in the setting of metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, There are two main cohorts. There are sort of the sort of varsity cohort, which is BRCA two, BRCA one, and ATM. Those are uh, the gene mutations for which we have more, or stronger evidence that there's uh, a likelihood of. Um, response to PARP inhibitor. And then there was also another another longer list where we're sort of still learning. So these are genes we're really interested in, we think are involved in DNA repair, but we're not as certain about their ability to predict. And those include BARD1, BRIP1, CDK12, CHECK1, CHECK2, you can see the list there. And the design of the study was really to look at the two cohorts. It was a two-to-one randomization for a laparab versus physician's choice in the metastatic castration-resistant setting post-abiraterone or enzalutamide. And the patients must have had one of the mutations uh, of the qualifying uh, mutations in order to uh, participate. And they were stratified by prior taxane and measurable disease. so very quickly, um, the two panels on the left are the cohort A, which again is BRCA1, BRCA2, and ATM, the sort of varsity team. And then on the right is A plus B, which is the entire cohort, um, both the varsity and the junior varsity team. Um, and there was both uh, a difference in imaging radiographic progression-free survival, as well as overall survival. Um, and on the basis of this, the FDA approved laparib in 2020 uh, for this, both cohorts, actually. Um, and so this is a nice option for patients with advanced disease who have mutations in any of these genes although I'll, the next slide sort of points out that there's more to it and we have much more to learn um, so and this is the uh, paper from Johan de Bono and, and his colleagues that was reported from the profound study and it breaks it down by genes in cohorts A and B and so um, I just draw your attention to brc 2 which is that red arrow and you can see very clearly elaborate is better um, whereas in the yellow arrow there's another gene which actually was not included in the FDA approval, um, PPP2R2A, which is that, um, did not have any benefit. And then most of the other genes um, are kind of in between, and they do cross the 1.0 line. And so I think that this suggests that um, we have more to learn about each of these genes individually, and some of this reflects the fact that they're just very rare. So we just need more experience. This next slide kind of makes that same point, um, and this is from Rucaparib. Um, so this is from the Triton 2 study reported by uh, Dr. Abita and all and his colleagues in 2020 looking at individual genes and their response to Rucaparib. And the point really is kind of the same point, which is we're just going to need to also look very carefully at each gene by gene. In this study, um, there was limited um, radiographic and PSA responses in men with alterations in ATM, in CHECK2 and CDK12. However, there was a response observed in PALB2, BRIP1, FANC A, and RAD51B. So um, we just need to learn more uh, by individual genes in addition to by category and group. And we'll be able to do this with more time, I think. So um, in February at GU-ASCO, we, we um, had two uh, really important studies that reported out Uh, Phase three studies, one called Propel and one called Magnitude. Both of them, interestingly, showed or were studies of abiraterone in combination with a PARP inhibitor in the frontline metastatic castration resistant uh, prostate cancer setting. Um, There was radiographic progression free survival benefit for, in both of the studies, for the homologous recombination repair deficient uh, cohorts. However, what was really, I think, Uh, compelling in terms and and sort of uh, uh, hypothesis generating and, and intriguing was that for the unselected population, meaning those that did not have homologous recombination DNA repair mutations, Propel showed a benefit, whereas magnitude did not. So I think, you know, there's more to learn on this. This is kind of certainly an uh, intriguing kind of finding, and I think we'll wait and see. There's more biomarker reporting that's anticipated as well as overall survival. So definitely food for thought, um, and I think we're all kind of really eager to see kind of the follow-up data, but definitely kind of exciting for patients, both who have mutations and then intriguing for those who don't. So next directions, I think um, I've made hopefully an argument for gene-by-gene assessment. Um, We've sort of talked about the disease spectrum in terms of risk. Uh, metastatic potential, tumorigenic potential, the treatment response. So just taking germline BRCA2 as an example, we know that it increases the risk of developing prostate cancer. It may increase the tumorigenic potential and metastatic potential. We think it predicts PARP inhibitor and platinum response pretty well. And we know that a mechanism resistance is BRCA2 reversion. I didn't really talk about that, but we know that to be the case. And so can we fill in the gaps for all the other genes? Can we begin to put together the information for ATM for check? To for PALB2, and so forth. Um, and, you know, with the goal overall of saying, can we find cancer earlier if we think there's a higher risk of developing cancer? And then can we use targeted therapies in a more thoughtful way earlier uh, to change the natural history? And isn't that really exciting? And I, I hope you agree that the answer is yes. Um, okay, so really quickly on pembrolizumab, um, the mechanism of action PDL1 um, is a, a molecule that interacts with PD1 and together they inhibit T cell killing of a tumor cell. So essentially the way I describe it to my patients is this is a mechanism of of putting the brakes on the immune system so that the immune system doesn't go out of control. The immune system has different checks and balances and this is one check. If we take that brake off, we give the immune system more leeway and flexibility to do what it normally wants to do which is find threats and take care of them. And so blocking this pathway can increase Um, the visibility of uh, the immune system and this sort of attention that's given and allows the uh, cancer to be better managed by the immune system. So this is really exciting. We know that MSI high, we've talked about already, mismatch repair deficiency, as well as high tumor mutational burden can can all um, be predictive of response. Um, MSI high and um, mismatch repair deficiency are relatively uncommon, but they're really actionable, um, and when they do work, they work quite well. Um, this is a series from Dr. Abida um, and his colleagues at Memorial Sloan Kettering um, reporting on the prevalence um, in prostate cancer about 3.1 percent, and then about 20 percent of them are uh, germline Lynch syndrome patients, and then um, interestingly, uh, uh, at least a sub- uh, some pr- uh, significant portion. Uh, five out of eleven had really durable response. So when it works well, it can work really well, and and, and this is really gratifying as uh, to see as a clinician. Um, this table um, is almost gets out of date really quickly. So I just the, the most important thing is that there's more trial, um, and uh, clinicaltrials.gov can give you um, updated opportunities. But there's um, a number of different studies that are ongoing now in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting and the biochemical recurrent setting, that's um, the bottom one, BRCA away, is actually going to be reported at ASCO in a few weeks. Um, and uh, so this landscape is changing. And so one of the things we talked about earlier is what is the role for germline testing in the localized disease setting. And I would argue one reason to consider it is to help patients learn about their clinical trial options. And there may be some of these really exciting options for them targeted in an earlier disease setting. Um, a brief mention on vision. So the phase three vision study was reported last year at ASCO. This is lutetium, now called Pluvicto or Vipivitide Totraxitan. Um, it was approved in March this year for patients with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer after AR targeting therapy, after docetaxel with PSMA expression. Um, I think this is a really exciting molecule. It's basically um, radiation therapy that's tagged to an antibody that recognizes prostate specific membrane antigen and obviously has a a survival uh, benefit and has been approved so it's now a new agent. So one of the questions um, I'm interested in and hopefully you are too is uh, what are the responses for germline BRCA2 and other DNA damaging uh, repair mutation related cancers because um, uh radi- radiation does is another form of DNA damage so one might hypothesize that um, patients might might respond better um, although there's some uh, patient uh, uh, there's a I think conflicting early case reports and one that says um, poor response one that says one that re- described exceptional response so I think again we need more data and experience to be able to say um, was sort of a gather more experience and, and move that forward. And just so you can appreciate kind of the movement in the field, this is a figure taken from a presentation from Dr. Sandu at uh, 2020 at Radio Radiopharmaceutical combinations are coming fast and furious. Um, so, in the new adjuvant setting, in the first line, in the second line, and in combination with other agents such as, for example, PARP inhibitors and AR targeting. So, lots and lots of uh, excitement and possibilities. Um, for us moving forward. And then I would sort of posit that it's important for us as the field to gather better data and to do so together. Um, and we've talked about some therapeutic clinical trials already, but I think also um, assembling our experience and data in terms of registry studies. So even if somebody does go on a study or they go on three studies, we want to know sort of longitudinally how do they do. And for those who can't go on studies, what is their experience? And so this is the PROMISE study, which um, has two main objectives. One is to offer germline testing for patients. The testing is saliva-based. It's color. We talked about that as a platform. It's uh, mail-based, meaning you can participate for, from the web and from your own home. Um, and then, uh, and that's another option in terms of getting access to testing, and the testing is covered by the research study, so the patient is, uh, does not have to pay anything, um, and insurance is not involved. So this is an option for testing, but the second more important, I think, or equally important objective is also for long-term follow-up. So those who have mutations of interest in the genes that we've talked about, BRCA2, ATM, and so forth, are also invited to long-term follow-up, and we plan to follow them 10, 15 years out to see what their outcomes are. And this is for any stage of disease, so localized uh, active surveillance cohort, uh, definitive treatment, and then advanced treatment if if relevant. Um, So that's that schematic so conclusions um so one in five patients with metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer have dna repair mutations in their tumors and one in ten with advanced disease carry those one of those mutations as an inherited form which has really important implications for treatment as well as family counseling and so offering genetic testing is really recommended for now many patients with prostate cancer and that's you know what we've been talking about for the last two hours um, molecularly targeted precision therapies are now approved. So it's not, uh, uh, it might happen, it, it is here. Um, they're available for patients, and they include Pembrolizumab, Rucaparib, Olaparib, and Carboplatin for advanced disease patients. And there's many trials, I hope you had a, fl- uh, a sort of appreciation of what's, of what's can now coming, of combinations, and also these agents earlier in earlier disease states. Um, Gene-by-gene interrogation and longitudinal registries, I think, are going to be also really important as we move forward. I didn't uh, mention here, but I'm just going to, or I don't put it here. There's another registry that Dr. Geary has called um, Precision, which is looking specifically at patients who are getting PARP inhibitors. And I think that's also really exciting and I'm happy to share that with you after... Um, And then urologists, you in the audience here today, urological oncologists, and together with genetic providers, medical and radiation oncologists, are really gonna be a key part of realizing this potential uh, for patients and for the knowledge that we can gain in the future. Um, so I'll just end with this schematic that I like to show, uh, which is a shared vision of cascading impact. So me, this is sort of from a medical oncologist standpoint. So I'm looking, you know, these are the 10 ba- patients with metastatic prostate cancer. And some of them are candidates for PARP inhibitor platinum and pembrolizumab. And uh, one in 10 of those men carries DNA repair mutations. And 50% of their first degree relatives may carry these same mutations. Um, and they have, you know, women have tailored screening and risk reduction options. And we uh, are hoping to get more options available for tailored early detection and curative intent. I've listed some of the early detection efforts, and we've mentioned them earlier also. Dr. Um, Morgan has that uh, program at University of Michigan and at Philadelphia as well at Jefferson. And so these are things we really need to be working on together, collecting and assembling knowledge to advance opportunities for tailored management at every stage throughout this spectrum of disease. so effective integration of genetics and prostate cancer, clinical care can be a force multiplier against cancer. So uh, that's my last slide. Happy to take questions with the, the rest of the panelists. Thanks.
1: Yeah, please go ahead. Thanks. Great talk, Heather, by the way, thank
3: you. Yeah, i got a couple of questions. I'll just do them kind of one at a time about the polygenic risk score. It really seems like the literature and some of the slides that you provided suggest that instead of having two legs to the table, the germline genetic testing and the somatic, that the polygenic risk score may be coming in as kind of a third leg to this because of the multiple allele risks that it picks up that, you know, miss the single gene mutations. But the single gene mutations can miss the risk of the combined. Yeah. score so the question the first question is, you know how do we use the polygenic risk score currently Is, is there a role or is it, it not clearly defined yet in terms of what we do with next steps?
2: So I mean the, we, we've known about these polymorphisms for years. Uh, it's just now that people are trying to get different, um, racial backgrounds, genetic backgrounds of families from European, African-American, and I think that's been one of the big steps forward. So we don't really have any, this is all, again, new information with the polygenetic risk scores. Uh, they're not really baked into any guidelines yet. I think they're evolving. And again, as, as I always like to talk about, we still do not know what causes prostate cancer and it could be that there's something in these polymorphisms that are subtly affecting a protein or something in our body and then that you got a DNA repair pathway and it goes so i don't think we're there yet i think we presented the information i think it's going to be probably a year from now we might have more information but right now there's really not a formal approved polygenetic risk score out there that's university, universally covered todd would you agree
1: yeah but it's it's coming the the so the i think the key criticism so for, key reason I think that they haven't been more widely adopted is they're really good at predicting development of prostate cancer. They can stratify prostate cancer risk, but none of them so far have reliably shown that they're able to predict for aggressive prostate cancer in, you know, patients and unaffected individuals. And so that, right, we're always looking for the biomarker that helps us know which man to screen and just like knowing some men are at more, greater risk of any prostate cancer, obviously, is not as informative as at risk of aggressive cancer. And so that's the critique. I, I suspect eventually, right, it's not going to be too long before we're, we're all, right, submitting to 23 Me or something like that, and we're getting our cardiac risk and our Alzheimer's risk, and, and potentially you could imagine that prostate cancer risk is going to be baked in there.
2: One question, actually just maybe think of a question for Heather. So how much are polygenetic risk scores used in other malignancies? Is there any, any, are they used at all?
0: I think my sense is, talking to my breast and colon cancer colleagues, is they're in a similar sort of, at a similar place, which is there's a lot of interest. One of the things that the recent developments that I think is important, going back to one of the comments, is that we have now polygenic risk scores that has been validated for multi ancestry populations. And I think that, you know, will help ensure that the data that we have is not limited to, you know, Caucasian or the white population, which, which historically had been one of the criticisms of the existing polygenic risk scores. So I think, you know, it will be coming. I think it'll probably land more in the urology conversations for screening rather than in the medical oncology setting. Although I think there's a lot of interesting biology that we can learn, for example, which single nucleotide polymorphisms might interact with the rare variants, or other sort of, um, you know, tumorigenic possibilities, you know, those are sort of, acad- you know, at this point, academic, but from a clinical standpoint, I think it'll probably, it, it may be coming to urology, but, um, you know.
2: I mean, it's, again, I, I'm, I'm really proud of the group of urologists here, I mean, precision medicine is our future. And I think, you know, breast cancer is so far ahead of us um, that we have a lot to learn from them. But I think everything that we're going to be doing, you know, our residents right now, we're trying to teach them more and more about genetics and genomics and how they're actually going to be applying, you know, these, this is sort of like Star Trek or something with, uh, you know, Spock and Bones, you're going to just get a genetic profile and you're going to decide what's going to be the best screening strategy, and it's going to be multifactorial. It's just not going to be, as we pointed out, it's just not going to be the mutated genes we're talking about, but it's going to be these other factors like, you know, the polygenetic risk scores and things like that that are going to direct our screening. Right now, again, as Heather mentioned, I think the polygenetics right now, looks like it may impact screening, but beyond that, therapeutics right now, it doesn't seem to have much of a, a place.
3: Yeah, and just a comment to add to that. I mean, it's really interesting that with germline and with somatic, you're still siloed to just the cancer that you're talking about. But with a polygenic risk score, you get the lifetime risk of major adverse cardiovascular events, for example, which are four to five times more likely to take a newly diagnosed prostate cancer's man's life than you know, the, the cancer itself. So a lot of interesting things to come, I think.
1: Yeah, it's a really great comment and question. Thanks.
0: Yeah. Come on. Hi, I'm from South Korea. It's a practical question. And one of my patients' uh, somatic test uh, was negative for BRCA1-2, and this patient is metastatic uh CLPC patients. So in this case, uh, do we have to recommend him to receive germline test? I think if I understood your question correctly, you said your the question is if there is a somatic germline test or somatic testing for MCRPC, do they also need germline testing? Is that your the question? Yeah, if it's
1: negative the somatic testing was negative, say oh, for a yes. DNA damage repair. Yeah, be- sorry.
0: Um, Yes, I would say if the patient is interested, yes, and so I didn't go over that, but um, depending on the test, and it depends very much, and this is changing also on the test platform. So some tests will report suspicion of germline tests, and other tests, the informatics that they use will screen it out completely. So it's really important if you're uncertain to not assume that the somatic will identify suspicion of germline, because some in some cases it does not. So I would really think of them as potentially complementary, but really, you know, there's, there's in the Venn diagram, there's an area that's not overlapping. So it's best, if there's interest in a family history, for the patient to also get germline testing, at least at the present time. Okay. Good question.
1: Yeah, please. Yeah,
5: so I have a question. I know, I know there's no answer for what I'm going to ask, but I think it's something that's important for us to think about. With, I think one of the trends um, in treatment of early localized prostate cancer today, with all the technology that we've seen, is, is the ability to treat some patients, uh, you know, focally for their prostate cancer. And so, do you envision that, uh, you know, there'll be a role for uh, germline testing specifically in sort of calling some of those patients out who may or may not be candidates for focal therapy? Is it going to be safe to leave? Prostate tissue, if there's a germline
1: mutation. Love that question. Um, there is, as you as you no doubt know, there's no simple answer to that. Um, but it's a it's a really great issue to highlight because the bigger question, the bigger right question is, which patients, say with um, you know higher grade cancer it, that we can see on an MRI, are appropriate candidates for focal therapy? Um, and, and, you know how do we you know how do we stratify risk stratify these patients? Well, I think germline genetics are going to play a role. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We, for example, BRCA2, right? If, it, if they have a high-grade cancer, high, even Gleason 7 cancer, and even if it's like they're the perfect candidate, they've got cancer. They've got a BRCA2 mutation. They're, they're, we, I mean, they are at risk of developing very aggressive cancer in the future. They're at risk of dying of prostate cancer. They are not a focal therapy candidate. No,
5: I think it's interesting because we're, 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 we're limited to really phenotypics what's it look like what's the Gleason score look like from a you know from a, a, you know from the view you know doesn't tell us much about uh, the really biology of that cancer really that's how much we're in the infancy here but uh, you can certainly i mean i think the ability to take a small tumor and kill it very effectively with the different energies is very good yeah we mean that, that. that's not that's not the question i mean i've, yeah. I've done hundreds and hundreds of focal procedures so I'm confident that I can kill a target if I can get energy to it. Yeah. But the real question is what's the what's the what's the rest of the cells in that prostate? What are they going to do and what's their potential to develop a, you know, a um, a dangerous prostate cancer uh, as years go by, especially in a young man.
1: Yeah, it's such it's such a good point. So we, right we're surgeons. We're, we 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 can we can remove a whole prostate. We can treat a focus of cancer. We, right, this is our that's our that's our thing but from a biological standpoint just because we can doesn't always mean that we should and with focal therapy I, I my opinion is we still need to be very very selective because we don't yet understand which patients are at really high risk we don't know what which tests um are the best tests to use uh, and so this is a i think a really important area of study for um for anyone doing focal therapy to be whether they have their own research programs or working with other, re, uh, other places that have research programs, studying the biology of those tumors, studying the biology of the patients who have recurrences, understanding what you know what really is the index lesion. We call the index lesion. Is it always the lesion that we can see? We know that that's not the case. Sometimes the lesion that we can see is not the biological driver of eventual metastasis. And so these are the big questions that we have to understand if, if we are gonna go the way of focal therapy, which would be great from a patient standpoint if we can do it safely. You know, I think what it, you know in, in my mind. If I'm going to offer focal therapy
5: to a patient, I think I do want to know their germline status, because uh, if if we proceed with that, it's going to. I think it would clue me in to making sure that patient is followed
1: very very carefully. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
0: It seems sort of analogous in a way, same similar considerations to active surveillance. You know, you want to just be either thinking about the risk and then being very attentive, even if somebody chooses to move.